0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. A few weeks ago, a Milneton resident was walking on the beach, not far from where I live, when he came across an odd fark. Yes, an fark on the beach. Sadly, The animal was deceased, and its presence, in what is most certainly nowhere near its natural habitat, caused quite a stir. Then, a few days later, a porcupine washed up on the beach a few kilometres away. So what do art fox and porcupines have to do with true crime, you may ask? Well, quite a lot, as it turns out. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 107 The Elephant in the Room. This episode is sponsored by Just Wellness. Okay, you're going to hate me for this because I know it feels like summer has just arrived but we do have to acknowledge that winter and flu season is not that far away. And really, there's no better time to start boosting your body to fight off those nasty bugs than right now when you're feeling amazing. Plus, we all know flu likes to sneak up on us in the last few months of summer when no one's expecting it. Just Wellness's various olive leaf blend tinctures are just the thing to stave off and help you deal with the symptoms of winter bugs and COVID-19, which is bound to continue to rear its head occasionally this year. A study published in April 2022 identified olive leaf's antiviral, antithrombotic, and anti-inflammatory properties as a viable candidate drug or supplement to control COVID-19 infection, and has been recommended for clinical investigation. All of Just Wellness's tinctures are based on olive leaf, and the blends, including moringa and pelagonium, only provide added benefits for arming your body for the winter season. You can purchase any of Just Wellness's range of tinctures on their website or in-store at Dischem. Buy any two products and get free delivery. A huge thank you to Just Wellness for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank those listeners who've supported the show through Patreon or PayPal recently. A huge thank you goes out to Monique Moller, Vimba Yanashe Kandeka, and Fiona Sparapano for your support on Patreon, as well as Tabang Mohale for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to get an exclusive episode every month, as well as ad-free versions of every week's episode, check out the link to Patreon in the show notes, and sign up for a minimum of $1, which is about the same price as a loaf of bread right now. You can also support the show by supporting our sponsors, including King Online and Wallpaper Online, by using the discount code TCSA10 or true crime respectively when purchasing on their websites and you'll get a 10% discount too. Or you can support me as an individual creator by purchasing my book Samurai Sword Murder in hard copy, ebook or audiobook formats, as well as the audiobook I narrated for Jana Marks of the Krugersdorp cult murders. Non-financial support is just as valuable. So please share and invite your friends to listen. Upfront, I do want to tell you that this week's episode does include mentions of harm to animals. I know that not everyone can listen to that type of material, so if it's not for you, feel free to switch off now and tune in again next week. If you are able to stick around, I think you'll find today's case as fascinating, albeit sad and maddening, as I did. As you may have already guessed, the case I'm discussing today involves the illegal wildlife trade. Specifically, I'll be discussing the biggest ivory bust in South African history at that time, but also how other parts of the illegal wildlife trade tie in with both ivory poaching and smuggling and other forms of organized crime. My research sources for today's case include an episode of Distart several research papers on these topics, and the judgment from the offender's appeal. So let's get into episode 107, The Elephants in the Room. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, Please see the helpline information on our show notes. In 2012, the Hawks received a tip-off about a storage facility in Mulnerton. It wasn't the storage facility itself that was the subject of the tip, but a man who would be visiting that facility and the contents of two storage units there. Tips like this come into law enforcement occasionally. Sometimes it's as a result of other intelligence operations Sometimes it's just a citizen who's seen something and doesn't feel it's right, and other times it's information provided by other criminals, who've been caught and need to provide leverage. The original tip was that the identified individual, a Chinese national called Chen Ji Liang, may be dealing in Abalone. When the Hawks ran his name, the lead was backed up by the man's criminal history. In 2003, Liang had arrived in South Africa from China. He'd applied for a residence permit, which he'd been granted, and in 2004, he was arrested and convicted on charges of Abalone possession in Johannesburg. He paid a fine for this conviction, and the next time he comes back up on records is in 2011, when he applied to renew his residence permits in the Western Cape. Now, I'm sure you have questions about this, as I did. I'd like to think that if a foreign national has been granted temporary residence in South Africa and is convicted of a crime, that it would make it pretty difficult for them to stay here legally. But that's apparently not the case. When you apply for a temporary or permanent residence permit and you already have a criminal record, you may or may not be granted residence it's not necessarily an immediate refusal. And maybe that's fair enough, because really it should depend on the type of offence, how long ago it was, whether your record has been cleaned since then, and so on. And the same applies to existing permit holders. If you're found guilty of an offence while holding a residence permit, it isn't necessarily immediately cancelled. Again, It depends on the type of offence, and it's very much up to the Department of Home Affairs to decide. They also have the right to determine whether you are of, quote, good and sound character, end quote, which is not actually a legally defined term and is kind of open to interpretation. If you're an existing residence permit holder and you commit a Schedule 5 or 6 offence, however, there is a better chance that you will lose your residence permit, and have to leave the country. Possession of Abalone is not a Schedule 5 or 6 offence, so it's entirely possible that this was either not an issue to Home Affairs, or Liang somehow got around that, if you know what I mean. Now, I get that we need foreign residents in our country for various things, but And this is really just my opinion. If you're involved in an offense that shows you have zero respect for the natural resources of the country that is hosting you, and actually you came here to illegally plunder those resources for your own benefit, I do think that should be a huge strike against you. Liang's entire presence in this country was suspect. On both his 2003 and 2011 residence applications, he put his occupation down as unemployed and retired. He was in his 30s. His wife and child still lived in China, and he'd made no application for them to join him here. He also received a sum of money each month from a Chinese bank account, which could not be explained even after an eventual forensic investigation of his account. He clearly was not here to build a life and add to our economy. He also wasn't here because he was fleeing from a country where his circumstances were dangerous or poverty-stricken. Someone was funding his stay here, and there was absolutely no benefit to South Africa to allow him to be here. But he was and just a year after his second temporary residence permit was approved, Liang was being watched by members of the Hawks, as well as agents from marine coastal management, who'd been called in because of the nature of the tip. The task team watched for two weeks as Liang arrived in a white Audi at the storeroom every few days. The registration of the vehicle was traced back to another Chinese national who lived in Parklands. Liang's own address was a block of flats in Milneton, which was also kept under surveillance. On the 14th of September 2012, the task team received news that Liang was on his way to the storage facility. They were ready to strike. Members watched as he entered the storage facility. He stayed inside for about 15 minutes before exiting, and as he did, they swooped. Liang was placed under arrest on suspicion of the possession of Abalone and escorted back into the storage facility. He was found in possession of two sets of keys, which fit two storage units in the facility. He also had two cell phones on his person, both of which were confiscated. Police confirmed which two units the keys fit. They were Unit 12 and Unit 349. They entered Unit 12 first, with Liang cuffed and made to watch as they began to survey the contents of the storage unit. The unit was piled high with sealed cardboard boxes. Most of the boxes were emblazoned with the same Chinese writing, and an English translation that claimed the boxes contained shrimp. The officers pulled down the first box and began to inspect its contents. Of course, they were sure they were about to find Abalone in the boxes, that is, after all, what they'd come for. But when they opened the first box, Abalone was not what they found. Instead, as box after box was opened, Laid bare on the floor of the storage unit, the gloved hands of the officers pulled out, not stolen treasures from the sea, but rather the unmistakable glistening white of elephant's ivory. As box after box revealed the same contents, either whole elephant tusks, cut pieces, or already manufactured trinkets such as chopsticks or bangles, the officers realized that the nature of their operation had just become slightly different. The marine coastal management agents who'd been there to witness the recovery of what they believed would be Abalone had to stand down, and officials from Cape Nature had to move in instead. Over the next few hours, an enormous stash of ivory was revealed between both the storage units The packaging in both units was identical. By the time the stashes from both units had been fully assessed, officials realized they had the largest haul of illegal ivory to date in front of them, 985 kilograms. Its value? 21 million rand. When police spoke with the owners and admin staff at the storage facility They confirmed that Liang was the only person they'd ever seen accessing the two units, but interestingly, the units weren't registered in his name. One unit had been leased by a Mr Wu, who upon inquiry had seemingly coincidentally, or perhaps not so coincidentally, left South Africa for China the day before the raid on the storage facility. The other unit had been leased by a Mr Lu, could not be traced. After the two storerooms were fully searched and all evidence recorded, the team proceeded to the flat in Milnerton where Liang was living. There they found something else entirely. It seemed that the abalone tip hadn't been completely off base because in Liang's flat police found a stash of dried abalone and equipment related to the drying process. The dried abalone was packaged in the same boxes and bags as the ivory, and forensic investigators would find Liang's fingerprints on both the ivory packaging and the abalone packaging. This twist in the case meant that the marine coastal management agents who'd stood down when the ivory was discovered and were replaced by the Cape Nature officials now had to come back onto the case and joined both the Hawks and Cape Nature to properly manage each element of the crime. 1,138 dried abalone were found in Liang's home, which had an estimated value of 230,000 rand. This was added to his charge sheet, and Liang was detained. From the beginning, It was very clear that although Liang was just one cog in the wheel that was driving the crimes involving the ivory and abalone, he seemed to be quite an important player. Organizations who research the structures of criminal syndicates involved in organized crime, including wildlife crimes, have determined that for the most part, these syndicates aren't necessarily specializing. The same syndicate may be involved in more than one type of organized crime, including drug smuggling and human trafficking, and then in addition they will also involve themselves in wildlife crimes of this nature. It's sort of like a group of companies that diversifies out into different industries. The money flow is all often going back to the same person or people but the spider web spreads out into all different arenas, and on each thread of the web is a different person in a different country, managing the particular type of crime that they're in charge of. Most often, when individuals are arrested, it will be the lower level guys, the ones doing the poaching, for instance. But once Liang was behind bars, it became clear that he was not a lower level individual. Almost as soon as the prison door clanged shut behind him, Liang was making a push for bail. He suddenly had a high profile paid for lawyer and the man was insistent that bail needed to be granted. He also said that they would pay whatever they needed to in order to get that bail granted. Of course, Liang was a significant flight risk. There was nothing connecting him to South Africa, and there was absolutely no guarantee that he would not flee the second he was released. Despite intense pressure from Liang's lawyer, and whoever clearly desperately wanted to get the man out of jail, he was denied bail. And then he was denied again when he appealed that decision. Liang denied any knowledge of the contents of the storerooms and his flat. He insisted that he'd been set up. At this point, though, he had no idea that police had found his fingerprints on the packaging. Not just on the outside of the boxes, but also on the inside. And there was more evidence of his involvement. When the two cell phones that had been found in Liang's possession were analysed, Police found photographs taken by him on the day before his arrest. The photographs were of whole elephant tusks. Some still had blood and tissue attached to them. Many had markings on them made by hand, numbers and letters, which clearly meant something to the person who'd written them on the tusks. Cape Nature officials analysed the photographs. They determined... That the photograph showed the tusks of at least nine elephants. Then together with the SAPS forensic analysts they compared that photograph to the cut up pieces of ivory found in the storeroom and they were able to match those up to the whole pieces of ivory in the photograph on Liang's phone. He'd clearly received those whole tusks on the day before he was arrested worked them down into chunks and more manageable pieces, and then he'd gone to the storeroom on the day he was arrested and dropped them off. Despite his early denials that he had absolutely no knowledge of the crimes he was accused of, when Liang's attorney heard that the prosecution had this evidence, he changed his tune. He then said that he had worked with the poached material, but he'd only been doing so as he was directed by his bosses. And no, he wasn't willing to say who his employers were, and he claimed to only know them by pseudonyms. The tragic reality of the discovery that had been made in the two storerooms became clear when Cape Nature officials confirmed that at least 34 elephants had been killed in order to remove the amount of ivory that was found in the storerooms that day. Elephants' ivory tusks are actually massive teeth that protrude outside the mouths of elephants. Like human and other mammal teeth, the tusks are deeply rooted in the mouth. Besides the fact that the mammal that owns these tusks is the largest land mammal and can weigh up to 10 tons, the very fact that the tusks are so deeply embedded means that poachers always kill elephants in order to remove their tusks. Every ivory trinket and tusk found in the possession of poachers, middlemen, or end buyers represents the death of an animal, and this in a species that really cannot do with the continual decimation of its numbers. The ivory frenzy, as it's called, started in Africa in the early 1900s there were an estimated 26 million elephants on the African continent in 1800, and today there are less than 415,000. In 1989, a worldwide ban on ivory sales led to a rebound in the population, but in 1999, and then again in 2008, due to pressure from countries in Asia and Southern Africa, the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species, or CITES, allowed two sanctioned sales of ivory. This sadly restarted the interest in ivory, and in turn the poaching industry. Each year at least 20,000 African elephants are illegally killed for their tusks. In 2016, a historic opportunity emerged to stop the African elephant poaching crisis. Governments across the world initiated concerted efforts to address poaching. The United States implemented a near total ban on elephant ivory trade in that year. And the United Kingdom, Singapore, Hong Kong, and other elephant ivory markets soon followed suit. Most significantly, in 2017, China took the remarkable step of closing its legal domestic ivory market. Other Asian countries with open elephant ivory trade are under substantial pressure to take action. South African elephants are now monitored constantly and as a result, Cape Nature could confirm that none of the tusks found in the Liang raid were from South African elephants. But the rest of Africa... Does not have the same resources, and it's very likely these elephants were killed in neighbouring countries, including Mozambique, Botswana, and Zimbabwe. When Liang relented and admitted he'd been working with the ivory in Abalone, but insisted he was just an employee, he made an offer to the states that he would pay a fine in exchange for a guilty plea. But although he'd gotten away with this in the past, This time, the NPA were not going with it. Those working in anti-poaching efforts have long felt that the judicial system has not backed up their work in identifying and arresting these criminals with worthy sentences. More often than not, poachers and middlemen would get off with fines, and that was only in the cases that actually made it to court. Most did not. As Liang's trial loomed, the anti-poaching community hoped that things were about to change. During the trial, Liang's defense attorney did nothing to refute the evidence presented by the state. Their case was simply that Liang was a low-level employee who did menial jobs for the people who actually leased the storage units, and that he was essentially the fall guy. The prosecution presented their evidence, including the fingerprints, witnesses from the storage company, the photographs from Liang's phone, and the circumstantial connections that existed with him having been the only person accessing the storage units and having visited there often. Then of course, the fact that the ivory he'd taken a photograph of the day before his arrest had clearly not been in the storage units when the photograph was taken, but that very same ivory had appeared in the unit after Liang, and no one else had visited on the day of his arrest. Liang's refusal to give up the names of the people he claimed to be working for, of course, did him no favours. While he insisted he didn't know their names, it seemed clear that he was covering up for somebody, and it's very likely those same people had been the ones behind the immense pressure to get him out on bail. Three years after Liang had been arrested, his trial concluded in 2015. He was found guilty on charges of ivory and abalone smuggling in contravention of the Nature and Environmental Conservation Ordinance as well as the Marine Living Resources Act. In passing down sentence, the judge said that despite the elephants in question not being South African, the plundering of African natural resources and the fact that the animals would have died a terrible death could not be ignored. As the judge continued, it became clear that he was considering the crime in a very serious light. He also said that he was concerned that Liang had refused to offer any information about where the 20,000 rand a month he was receiving from China actually came from, and also that he refused to say who he was working for. This seemed to speak to the man purposefully protecting the rest of the ring he was involved in, and this did not sit well with the judge. Ultimately, Liang was sentenced to 10 years jail time for the ivory charge, two years for the Abalone charge, plus a 5 million rand fine. The prosecution were elated, as were animal rights and anti-poaching groups. Finally, it felt as though poaching was being taken seriously as a crime, and this would undoubtedly send a message to others considering involving themselves in the illegal trade that South Africa would not stand for it. Liang, though, was not taking his sentence lying down, and clearly neither were those who were funding his defence because they immediately launched a full-on appeal against the sentence, although not the conviction itself. To explain, when a convicted offender appeals, they can either appeal their conviction, so the finding of guilty or not guilty, or the sentence, or both. Usually they'll appeal the aspect they're most likely to have success with, which is usually the sentence itself it's very uncommon for appeal courts to reverse guilty verdicts. So unless an offender really feels they have an excellent chance at appealing their guilt and they have sufficient grounds, such as new evidence or highly inefficient legal counsel, it'll most commonly be the sentence they'll appeal against. And Liang clearly didn't feel he had much chance of having his guilty verdict reversed, and understandably so. The basis on which he appealed his sentence, though, was quite interesting. Liang claimed through his defense that because there had been so few proper convictions related to poaching, and most of those convictions had not resulted in jail time, that the judge had erred in sentencing him separately for the Ivory and Abalone charges, and that he should have only received one sentence for both of those charges. They also argued that the fine was unfairly calculated, as the judge had not taken into account Liang's personal financial situation, and he did not have the means, he claimed, to pay a 5 million rand fine. Liang's appeal was successful. His prison sentence was reduced by one year, and the fine was reduced to 300,000 rand. He was remanded to Palsmore Prison to serve his sentence, and considering the crime occurred in 2012, he's very likely already been released from prison either after having completed his sentence or on parole. I do hope that he was deported directly after this, and hopefully is never granted a residence permit again, but I also don't know that for sure. The prosecution team was understandably very proud of this conviction, and it did seem to send a message, because in the years after Liang's trial, instances of ivory smuggling did decrease. Although poaching of ivory has continued to decline throughout Africa over the years, it is still not completely stamped out. In 2018, 87 elephants were found shot to death in a single area in Botswana in what was described as the largest single poaching incident in recent history. None of those tusks were recovered. The World Wildlife Fund, or WWF, and its partners continue to work to ensure the ban implemented in China, which is the largest single ivory market, remains successful by focusing on eliminating remaining consumer demand for elephant ivory and black market sales. The WWF is attempting to address the root of the problem by engaging directly with elephant ivory consumers and working with other governments to ensure the imminent closure of open elephant ivory markets, as well as working to understand the underlying motivations of elephant ivory buyers to develop strategies to influence them. The goal is to create a new social norm that buying illegal elephant ivory products is socially unacceptable. And I think that this is a pretty smart move, because this is really where the roots of the problem comes from, and the same goes for many forms of wildlife crime. Rhino horn poaching remains a huge issue in South Africa and the continent. Rhino horn also goes to many Asian markets where, for the most part, it's used in traditional medicines. This is also true for many other animal body parts and organ harvesting. And while changing a desire for ornamental value is one thing, changing deeply ingrained beliefs about traditional medicine is quite another. In traditional Chinese medicine, the rhino horn, which is shaved or ground into a powder and dissolved in boiling water, is used to treat fever, rheumatism, gouts, and other disorders. According to the 16th century Chinese pharmacist Li Shi Chen, the horn also cured snake bites, hallucinations, typhoid headaches, carbuncles, vomiting, food poisoning, and devil possession. Interestingly, most sources I looked at dispel the idea that it's used as an aphrodisiac. Scientists are doing their best to bring logic to the table in this case, too. Through studies which use seized rhino horn to test on rodent subjects in order to determine whether it actually provided any of the claimed benefits. The only benefit scientists found during the study was that several kilograms of rhino horn dust reduced the fever in a single rodent by two degrees. To achieve the same effect in a human, they would need to consume close to 20 kilograms of rhino horn dust or they could just take two paracetamol tablets, which would reduce the fever even faster and more effectively. I joke, but this is a devastatingly serious matter. It is very difficult to argue with generations of family law, which is then further reinforced by an entire society. But just as we cannot and do not allow cultural practices that are considered harmful to humans, by the same token, those beliefs cannot supersede an entire species' right to survive. Sadly, we've seen many South Africans becoming involved in the illegal rhino horn trade recently, and I'll probably explore that entire rabbit hole in a whole separate episode at some point. But really, it is all connected. At the same time as ivory and rhino horn are being poached and smuggled, live animals are being trafficked out of South Africa on container ships and through airports for sale in overseas markets. The trafficking of animals happens in very similar ways to the trafficking of humans. In fact, they are often done by the same groups. And that brings me back to that art on the beach remember that from the beginning? The NSPCA conducted an autopsy on both that animal and the porcupine recovered a few days later. Both animals had not drowned. They were dead when they entered the water. Both had likely died from heart failure caused by dehydration and excessive stress. Both animals were very likely victims of live animal trafficking. They were probably being held on a ship and had died while on board. As they were no use to the traffickers dead, they'd simply tossed their bodies overboard and shortly afterwards they'd washed up on a beach, where ordinary members of the public, who'd likely never even thought about the horrors of wildlife crime, found them. Their very ordinary lives crossing paths in that moment with what really is organized crime. Ardfok, porcupines, elephants, rhino, and abalone. All very different creatures with one thing in common, human beings. And then consider that the very same criminals handing off shipments of illicit abalone and bloody elephant tusk are intrinsically linked to those responsible for vulnerable people being trafficked throughout and out of Africa on a daily basis, to the large shipments of drugs arriving on our shores, to the guns that make their way out of police stations and into the hands of gangs, and even, some believe, to corruption deep within government departments. Stealing resources from our country. And suddenly, the art vark on the beach isn't just weird. It's not just sad. It's a little bit terrifying. To read more about the links between wildlife crimes and other forms of organized crime and corrupt activity, go to the website for the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime and enter the keyword poaching in the search bar. Thank you for listening to episode 107, The Elephant in the Room. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Lived Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.